<laughs> yeah, and Matilda's probably like the last book you would go to for parenting advice, but there's this <laughs> one line from Matilda that I've been thinking about all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the when Matilda is recounting kind of her birth and her father's uh, disappearance, and in the letter that the father leaves um, with her aunt, he says, um, let's see. As for that unhappy little being whom I could not see and hardly dare mention, I leave her under your protection. Take care of her and cherish her. One day I may claim her at your hands, but futurity is dark. Make the present happy to her. And I've, it's such, it's so dark. I know, but I've been trying to make that my motto. Like, just make the present happy, right? That is a great line for the time. I'm I'm trying. And welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we are discussing Mary Shelley's novella, Matilda, with academic and author Rachel Fetter. We've discussed Mary Shelley before on the show, so if you've not listened to our previous episodes, then do go and check those out. Lauren talked with the fantastic Fiona Sampson in Season 3, Episode 9, and reviewed the not-so-fantastic Mary Shelley biopic in Season 2, Episode 29. Uh, But here to tell us more about the book is this week's guest, Rachel Fedder. Rachel is an assistant professor of English and Literary Arts at the University of Denver, Her scholarly and creative work has appeared in a range of publications, including ELH, Studies in Romanticism, and a poetry chapbook from Dancing Girl Press. And her book, Harvester of Hearts, Motherhood Under the Sign of Frankenstein, is now available from Northwestern University Press. You know, it's it's strange to say because my whole book is this kind of me projecting myself onto Mary Shelley project. But I think part of why I can do that is because I don't get Mary Shelley at all. Like as a person. (laughs) She's very hard. She's very, very hard. I think I, I mean, I asked Fiona Sampson that about her book. I was like, who is she? I I don't get a sense from her journal. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, she's a real like Virgo. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I, you know, she's just, she's doing the thing. And I mean, I think part of it is that she is a Virgo, isn't she? Now I'm double checking in my, I think she is. (laughs) I think because Mary Wollstonecraft died from complications in childbirth and then Mm -hmm. part of her legacy that she left Mary Shelley was this kind of radically feminist, incomplete, gothic novel Mm-hmm. about a woman who's writing part of it is kind of voice to her child who's been taken from her and she's saying you know that this is my advice to you kind of this is for you and then of course Godwin's mm-hmm. like let's publish this Mary Shelley you know Mary right. Wollstonecraft Godwin should see this that's totally not right doesn't shield her from that at all so in a way Mary Shelley is this like daughter of a text in a way that's mm-hmm. really bizarre in the way that she always kind of accessed her mother textually and then her access to and of course her relationship with Godwin is so complicated and then Godwin is so complicated and then you know Shelley's feelings about Godwin and how that gets refracted through their romantic relationship so 
she's always kind of, even in her most intimate relationship, she was always in this kind of viscous textual matrix of intellectual and literary history that, mm-hmm. you know, I, like, I can't, I, it, so it's hard to understand her, cho- her choices, yeah. right? Um, is there a literary figure that you do feel like you have, like you have an understanding with? Mm, I really love Dorothy Wordsworth. I feel like I just get, I just get it, you know, it's like, take a walk. I love her. I just don't know. Well, at least Matilda is like, Matilda is the everything is horrible book. Yeah. So there's nothing about it that feels inappropriate for any time. Right. Like you can never, it's like always an okay time to talk about Matilda. (laughs) <laughs> so especially as we're at the end of the world so um yeah. oh my gosh well let's get into it because... <laughs> no. yeah let's, let's get do into it. it i'm here yes <laughs> um so you know this season we're talking about all of the lesser known works diaries letters just all that stuff from our favorite author- authors that we don't talk about because mm-hmm. of course with mary shelley we talk about frankenstein but like she's got other stuff going on Mm-hmm. So much stuff. So much stuff. Like, what can you tell us about Matilda? I I have only just glanced through it, so I'm a newbie to this as well. Ooh, okay. Well, I will try not to give too much away. Um, so, you know, like Frankenstein and like uh, The Last Man, which folks are saying people should be reading now because it's a novel yeah. about a pandemic that leads to an apocalypse that I don't think this is the time personally to read (laughs) the last man, but like Frankenstein and like the last man, um, Matilda is in many ways a a meditation on social distancing and on isolation. Mm. Um, It's a novella in which a young woman recounts her short traumatic life and accounts for what my colleague, Deanna Kretzky calls her relentless orientation toward death. Matilda's relentless orientation, not Deanna's. Um, and, uh, that description makes the novella sound very romantic with a capital R, but Mm. it's so voicey. Matilda's voice is so compellingly rendered that the story feels more contemporary than it should for a kind of, um, a romantic era incest suicide story, which is what it is. Um, and so, and my students sometimes tell me that it reads like YA, which, okay, interesting. Right? It's like it's a big mood. Matilda is a big <laughs> mood. Um, and uh, the text has commonly been read biographically. So um, like Mary Shelley, Matilda has a mother who dies from complications sustained in childbirth, dies a few days after Matilda's birth. Um, Matilda's destroyed by her father. So this complicated, intense joyful, painful relationship that's full of love and hate and all of that, this kind of intense relationship um, with the father gets read as a confession of or expression or or kind of in relation to Mary Shelley's relationship with her father, William Godwin. And then uh, there's also this just great, cute poet, Woodville, so that... <laughs> So Woodville's often read as Shelley. And the the textual history really supports this biographical reading um, because Mary Shelley wrote Matilda in 1819, and then she sent it to Godwin, who was to help her publish it. And he hated it, and he confiscated it, 
And she tried to get it back and she never got it back. So we know that the fair copy that she sent to Godwin, that kind of final copy that she, we think intended to publish. Some people think she never really wanted it published. Um, we That's lost. We don't have that. And then in 1959, Elizabeth Nietzsche working with microfilm um, transcribed the manuscript. And then that was the standard edition until very recently. In 2017, my colleague Michelle Faubert um, did a wonderful edition for Broadview where she worked directly with the manuscript materials. So we have it now because of two feminist critics who kind of went back and got it, um, but mm-hmm. Godwin confiscated it and kind of took it away. So it has this very dramatic textual history. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. That he smacked it down. <laughs> it's like no, <laughs> no. Maybe I mean, people who want to like him, you know, everyone the critics always kind of cathect onto them because you can't separate the gossip from the literary production or the intellectual right. work really with the Godwin Wollstonecraft Shelley's. So people who want Godwin to be not awful say, oh, he's protecting her. There were all these custody issues that Shelley encountered, that Mary Shelley encountered later and it's so important that this wasn't published. Um, although, of course, then we can debate if as a narrative, as if as an incest story, it's any worse than lots of other works that were kind of happening at this time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we don't really know. What is your favorite part of Matilda? Hmm. What, you, what draws you to that text or what's the most interesting well, I so I definitely my relationship with the novella has evolved. I first started assigning it because it just it works really well with Frankenstein in the classroom. So it's a good mm-hmm. pairing. It's a short book. It's a really quick read, and then it it's a kind of interesting inversion of Frankenstein. So instead of a you know a human a monstrous human and a human monster, you have just people. So you know the father and the daughter. Um, instead of the monster being that, you know, the outcast being someone who looks like a monster and is told that he's a monster and feels himself to be human, but then ultimately realizes he's in a monster story. Um, Mm -hmm. the outcast is this beautiful girl who sees herself as monstrous. So it it inverts a lot of the themes, um, in ways that I find really useful, just kind of in the classroom. And Mm -hmm. so I taught them together you know, frequently over the course of several years. And then I taught Frankenstein and Matilda back to back, nine months pregnant. And interesting. <laughs> yeah. And which my whole book kind of came out of that it was, it was very intense. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I just really started to rethink Matilda in the context of and in relation to maternal anxiety and maternal loss. Um, which were so huge for Mary Shelley um, in this period when she had, so she, when Mary Shelley wrote Matilda, she had lost three children and she was pregnant. And so she was in this really kind of intense space of loss. And then on top of all of that, she, you know, was acutely aware that her mother had died as a result of her birth that Wollstonecraft had died um, you know, from complications sustained in birth. And then she had also, her half-sister had committed suicide. Um, her husband's pregnant wife, right, because they weren't technically married yet, he was right. still married, had committed suicide. And and she was just kind of, she was in a really, really bad place. She was mad at Godwin. She was punishing Godwin. 
um, he came down on her really hard for her grief after her first son's death. And um, yeah, and it's just kind of all of that affect from this whole experience that she was really in this kind of darkest place um, bubbles up and it becomes this really kind of swift mythic story. And so that interplay to me is so fascinating. There is a lot of just like, like rage really carries carries you through her pages. I feel. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I love that. That's what I really love about her <laughs> writing. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I just uh, that's I need to read Matilda. Honestly. Yeah, you do. And it's what's what's so fascinating. And for me, thinking about Matilda in this context, what's so fascinating is it's rage, but it's also love, and mm. it's also Matilda's almost this. I read now, having thought about it in this way, I read the novella almost as this protective um, spell that she's casting on Percy Florence, who was to be her only surviving child. Um, she, there's a moment when, so she and the poet, she asked the poet Woodville, this doesn't, I mean, spoilers, the spoilers and the trigger warnings are pretty much the same with this book. So it's, you know, you don't really read it for the plot, you kind of read it for the mood. But there's a moment right. when she asks um, Woodville to die with her and tries to um, have a, a suicide pact with him. And it's kind of the moment logically in the plot where they should be getting together romantically, right? But she has this really kind of twisted education. And so she tries to make that happen. And he says, let's see, he says... In something like, I had the quote right here and then I lost it. Indeed, I dare not die. I have a mother whose support and hope I am. And then his mother got sick and he leaves to take care of her. And that's when Matilda kind of finally died. You knew she was going to die, right, from everything I'd said right. so far. Okay. So, yeah. indeed, I dare not die. I have a mother whose support and hope I am. And I really think that was almost this spell that Mary Shelley was casting on Percy Florence. I mean, between you know, with all of the different types of loss that were surrounding her and also just common sense, it was so likely that one of them was going to die. And so I almost read it as this self-sacrifice or this, you know, if it has to be one of us, this kind of protective. So it's full of love, but the love is also, like, it's not rage and love. The rage and the love are the same mood. Yeah. Ooh. Really you can get me hyped for this. I book. know you can tell I'm not sleeping that much, but <laughs> in this moment of you know world history, but yeah, I love though that like the theme of motherhood too. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm, totally, you're totally attuned to that as well oh my because gosh. Um, because of your book Har Harvester of Hearts, Motherhood Under the Sign of Frankenstein. So, what led you to write that? book mm -hmm. definitely I mean it came out of this moment of of teaching the text back to back super pregnant I also mm -hmm. just found myself thinking about Frankenstein a lot during my first pregnancy and mm -hmm. just being in a pregnant body is so weird mm -hmm. and um, I had taught a bunch of monster classes and thought about different theories of monstrosity and I started to apply so Jeffrey Jerome Cohen has these monster theses and a lot of them also apply, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this as well. But for me, they kept popping into my head. 
as the experience of being pregnant as well. So, you know, some stranger in a crowd would put her hands on my belly and I would think of Cohen's, Mm -hmm. the monster, you know, the monster's body as a cultural body, that kind of thing, you know, so being a cultural body, being a kind of hybrid body, um, policing the borders of the possible is another line from that from that piece of theory. So just the the kind of strangeness of being pregnant and being pregnant in the world definitely made me revisit Mary Shelley in a, in a different way. And then I, you know, I had been teaching these texts for many years and I, you know, I would give the biographical information to any, anyone who's taken a class from me will tell you that I love a little gossip in my literary history. So I give, you know, I've given them this information, but I had given it to them as a different category of information, right? So the way that we would relate Frankenstein to Milton and the way that we would relate Frankenstein to Mary Shelley's relationship with Percy Shelley and, Mm -hmm. um, and what was happening to her as a mother, those were different moves that I would make in the classroom. They were different moves that I would make in my thinking. And when I, at that moment of teaching these texts, so super pregnant, I realized that that's a pro- that's a problem. That's a problem with how we think about literary history. That those hmm. those are Mary Shelley's. You can't separate kind of her biographical from her intellectual history. So you know, Wollstone. Hmm. If we think about Wollstonecraft's influence on Shelley's thinking, you know, that and, and Wollstonecraft's fiction, and we'll see in all of Wollstonecraft's writings and their and their influence on Shelley's thinking. We also have to think about Wollstonecraft's placenta, which got mm-hmm. stuck and, you know, it didn't, she didn't expel it properly and the doctor had to pull it out and he hadn't washed his hands and he introduced an infection and that killed mm-hmm. her. And she was in the middle of writing her most radically feminist or proto-feminist text, The Wrongs of Women and Mariah. And, um, you know, and Mary Shelley grew up with that text, which was incomplete in, in this very provocative way. So placenta is part of the intellectual history. And we, mm-hmm. we don't really have a way within disciplinary literary studies. We don't really have a way to talk about that. And so, yeah, so that to me, the, I, I thought, I mean, I, now I'm talking about it as if I set out to do all of these things, but I also was just kind of writing you know how it is, mm-hmm. but it was just like a perfect storm. It seems like, yeah, yeah. I've like it never, all came together. Yeah, I've never quite had an experience like that writing a project where it just felt like I just have to write this down and I'll deal with it later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so Mary Wollstonecraft's um, placenta. That's where the book comes from, <laughs> and my it placenta, was which one also of the possible stuck. titles. <laughs> my placenta and Mary Wollstonecraft's placenta. I have. There's a moment in the book. Well, and I, the book is hybrid. It's, I talk about myself and I sometimes need to refer to like a nineties music lyric to get to an idea. It's a very weird book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but very, I, it's very up my alley. Oh, good. Oh, good. This is very <laughs> us. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah. But I, you know, the, uh, something similar happened with my placenta when, in my, my first experience of childbirth. So thinking, yeah, mm-hmm. so that's where the book comes from. Our placentas. I'm going to say placenta 10 more times on your podcast. (laughs) So part of what I'm doing in Harvester as well is to look at how to interrogate my own almost bizarre attachment to Mary Shelley. You know, why am I, Mm -hmm. I'm becoming a mom. Why am I processing this through Frankens? Like, why is that my parenting book, right? 
why is that what I'm thinking about? But then I also look at at feminist literary at the feminist literary critics who really labored to ensure Mary Shelley's canonicity, right? And to make sure that we would all mm-hmm. still be talking about her, but then to think about their attachments and their kind of experiences of her. Um, so the it's in what you brought up with the you know, editing each other and the collaboration and all of that. There's a moment in Anne Malore's Mary Shelley book um, where she, I believe that's where it is, where she kind of wishes for an edition of Frankenstein that just gets rid of all of Percy Shelley's edits. Mm -hmm. And then there's an article, and I also spoke to Anne Malore on the phone. There's some kind of moments from a it was, we actually spoke on the day of the last presidential election and there it was, it was very, it felt very, yeah, it was, it was, it was a big mood. It was a very loaded um, moment of kind of uncertainty. And we were talking and, mm-hmm. and we spoke about, you know, her relationship to her own father, her relationship to her ex-husband, her own birth experience, how all of these of went into how she interprets Mary Shelley um, and interprets Frankenstein. And she, she t- spoke to me about that moment when she gave birth to her son and the doctor held him up and um, she described him kind of looking not great <laughs> at that moment. Mm-hmm. And you know how the, um, how your hormones are at war with his hormones and things just look sort of like distended and, And in that Mm -hmm. moment, she kind of realized, oh, Mary Shelley might have had, she called it a moment of not overwhelming joy on first seeing her son, William. So that was this moment when she went back to Mary Shelley in the moment of childbirth. And then, you know, I am a a full generation later, I think. And and I had a similar experience in childbirth. I lost a lot of blood when I gave birth to my first son. And I fainted a couple of times Mm -hmm. kind of on the delivery table and... Um, you know, I taught Frankenstein so many times and we had always really could that moment when Victor Frankenstein animates the creature and then he just kind of like goes and takes a nap. Right. And so mm-hmm. we, and we had all criticized that this is the moment of abandonment and we had looked at it through all of these different angles. How do you read that moment? And then when I woke up having lost consciousness, I thought, Oh, like, just like <laughs> I passed out just like in Frankenstein. Right? right. When you birth something, then you pass out. Right. So yeah, this, yeah. And there, and there are other examples I looked at, um, you know, Betty T. Bennett, who was this great editor of and, and critic of um, Mary Shelley. I looked at her archives and she has these kind of creative writing activities where she's in touch with Mary Shelley, in touch with the creature. She's mm-hmm. kind of writing herself into the universe and, yeah. So, I mean, I think we're always getting, you know, Barbara Johnson, there's so many examples, but we're always getting Frankenstein or Mary Shelley in general, you know, mediated by all of these layers of feminist thought. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, exper- the the intellectual and the biological experiences of, of these readers. Um, it's interesting. I feel like we've like touched on this a little bit, but I am obsessed with your tweet regarding your book where you said 
I wrote this book in part because I wanted to blur the line between bodily and intellectual history, mm-hmm. in part because I wanted a way to think about Shelley's tragic experiments in motherhood and family making that move beyond the sensationalist or biographical. Mm-hmm. Love that. Thank you. So for a really fun question, because mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I'm obsessed with Shelley, mm-hmm. <laughs> Percy Shelley, in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Just like I like looking up little Shelly stories every once in a while. Oh, Shelly. He tries so hard. The other day. He tries so hard. So hard. I mean, do you think that Percy Shelley would have gone on The Bachelor if he was alive today? Mm, I feel so seen. Like, super embarrassed. (laughs) Humiliated. I was, like, really thinking about doing a comic about this the other day. I was like, I'm bored. Let me do this. (laughs) So, my opinion is that he would have gone on The Bachelor mm-hmm. and then somewhere mid-season he would have absconded with you know two mm-hmm. of the contestants and Chris Harrison and like right. a cute baby that he saw on one of those dates where they go to an outdoor market or something <laughs> and then he would show back up <laughs> he would show up at the after the final rose taping and be mm-hmm. genuinely confused and surprised that people were frustrated with him that's yes. my take. Oh, he would be a. That's a great season. <laughs> it's a great season. It's the most dramatic season ever. Definitely, he would definitely jump the fence with two women. <laughs> yes, but no, he wouldn't jump the fence. Like Chris Harrison would carry him over. Byron would carry him over the fence. <laughs> right. Here you are, you delicate creature. Ah, <laughs> oh, he'd be great. I was just like, ah, oh, Percy. Do you have a favorite Percy story? Random like anecdote about oh, him. Percy. I mean, when it comes to Percy Shelley, I do think, and because I'm so interested in Mary Shelley's experiences of motherhood, I do think a lot about the Elena Adelaide mystery and like what was going on with that. Um, Ooh, tell everyone a little bit about that because it's interesting. Yeah. We know so much about the lives of the Shelleys and we don't know about this. And so that's what's so fascinating about it to me. Mary Shelley Mm -hmm. stopped keeping her journal when this was going on. Claire's journal is lost from this period. Um, We really, we just don't know. So my book is in these little tiny micro chapters. And um, this, I think, is the shortest one. But some of them are very, very short. In this one, it's chapter 21, Brevity. And it's after Ann Carson. And it's like a more, it's just a weird little moment where I'm thinking through the different mysteries of this adoption um, in which, you know, in, in 1818, uh, this baby was born and the Shelleys adopted her or something. And on the birth certificate, Shelley said that he was the father and Mary Shelley was the mother. And we know that Mary Shelley was not the mother because they left Elena Adelaide and and left her, which Mary Shelley, when we look at her whole history of mothering, she would never have done that. Um, and uh, so we, we know that. And then other than that, we don't really know why this happened. And so and and the various theories that critics have come up with um, have to do right in part with what they want to think about how feminist Mary Shelley is or how much we like Percy Shelley. So everything from mm-hmm. um, Percy Shelley adopted this child to try to make Mary Shelley feel better because she was grieving. Um, from that to uh, there was a, 
um, a servant of theirs had been assaulted potentially by Byron and then was a single mother and they were trying to kind of protect her, protect that mm-hmm. child by making that child legitimate. I mean, everything in between, there was a, a fan of Shelley's who was kind of following them and he had an affair with that person and the child was born. So we have all different theories. And there's this straight, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that that everyone in their crowd sort of understood, I think, understood themselves as being in literary history in this weird way, in part because of the connection mm-hmm. to Byron and Byron's celebrity. And so it almost feels like it's not just that, that what happened with Elena Adelaide is this detail that we can't figure out. It's actually this secret that the Shelleys are keeping from us. Mm-hmm. We have so many letters. We have so many journals. You know, we have everything. We don't have this. It was not left to posterity. Um, so anyway, so the the little essay is, um, so brevity after Anne Carson. On December 27th, 1818, either a child was born in Naples or she was not. If a child was born in Naples, either she was named Elena Adelaide Shelley or she was not. If the child was named Elena Adelaide Shelley, either Percy Bysshe Shelley was her father or he adopted her. If he adopted her, either he did so to placate Mary Shelley's ravenous grief or he did so for some other reason. If he adopted her to placate Mary Shelley's ravenous grief, then either he was successful or he was not. If Percy Bysshe Shelley was the child's father, he may have claimed that Mary Shelley was the mother, but she was not. If he adopted the child for some other reason, then either it was Mary Shelley's idea or it was not. If Percy Bysshe Shelley was the child's father, then the mother could have been Mary's stepsister or a servant or a reader or someone else entirely or maybe not. If Elena Adelaide Shelley was teething or just fussy. If Elena Adelaide Shelley was smiling or just gassy. If Elena Adelaide Shelley was what is sometimes called a good sleeper. Either Mary Shelley knew who the mother was or she did not. After Elena Adelaide was born, either Mary Shelley held her or she did not. If Mary Shelley held Elena Adelaide, either this holding was ordinary or it was not. After the Shelleys left Naples, either Elena Adelaide was lonely or she was not. When Elena Adelaide died, aged one month, five, one year, five months, and 14 days, either Mary Shelley wept or she did not. And so I just became really interested you know, in this mystery. And I, I guess the, I guess that really, I'm realizing that that really says a lot about how I feel about Percy Shelley, that my favorite anecdote is this thing we don't know, right? Where like, maybe he was trying to be good, but maybe he was being awful, which is kind of a metaphor for my whole thing with him. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'm interested in that, in that mystery. And I'm interested also in these children who were a part also, you know, like Byron, like the Shelleys, they were part of literary history and their making, but they don't leave a recognizable archive. They just leave these kind of absences. Last thing for you. Okay. Can, can you give us one of your bad romanticisms? (laughs) Cause these are really awesome. I would love to. So these are the, the bad, bad romanticisms is a serial poem that I wrote. Mm -hmm what feels like a really long time ago. And I really kind of, I gave myself the chills last night because I had one all picked out that's um, about Elena Adelaide 
and Mary Shelley and motherhood. Although I, as you'll, you can tell from the book, we do that one. And also because it refers to another really wonderful novella that I love to Jamaica Kincaid's um, 1990 novella, Lucy, which is about an au pair. And so then I can tell everyone that that's a great, if you're hopefully by the time you're hearing this, right, you're not still stuck in your house, but that's another great novella. Fingers crossed. Oh my goodness. But that's another wonderful novella. So I was going to read that one. And then I was looking through to find it, and I, I have a Matilda poem in here that I had no recollection of having written or edited Uh-oh. or published. So which one do you want? <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, Matilda would okay. be great. I'm also curious about the Elena Adelaide one, okay. though. Hmm. Sh- well, I'll read you both, and you can edit one out because they're short. Or you- yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the Alina Adelaide one, oh no, these have Roman numerals. Is third this is romanticism thirty-six. Who was Elena Adelaide? A mystery in the timeline. Percy Shelley's bastard child, a replacement daughter adopted to placate Mary Shelley's monstrous grief. We don't know. We won't know. We know she died. We know she only lived that life once, or else she lives that life over and over. Elena Adelaide sounds like a baby in an ergonomic carrier in Park Slope, which is in Brooklyn. Remember the couple dancing in front of us at the show on Thursday night with her sharp features and shock of hair and her red dress, a modern Mary Shelley. Her hipster husband had less style, more bravado. They danced while Elena Adelaide slept at home, perhaps watched over by Jamaica Kincaid in Williamsburg or Greenpoint or nowhere. So that one, when I read it back. Oh, my God. I was, like, <laughs> nodding along about the parts. <laughs> when I read this one, I'm like, did I ever go hear me go out to hear music on a Thursday night? I'll give you the Matilda one, too, because it's just really spooky. But you can edit it if you decide okay. it's too spooky. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So this is uh, Romanticism 14. According to my students, according to the ancient Mayan calendar, today is the last day of the world. And I'm not sure I'm glad I spent last night drinking dandelion tea and reading Mary Shelley's Matilda. I'm trying to figure out if it's too creepy to assign in my post-apocalyptic romantics class next semester. Reading Matilda is like finding out Dan Humphrey is Gossip Girl on every page. I know it's you. (laughs) That's great. I love that. (laughs) I'm a weirdo. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And we are back. Now, I just wanted to clarify for listeners who, like me, might not know anything about star signs and Mm. got intense FOMO uh, from that Virgo joke at the top of the interview. (laughs) So, (laughs) according to astrologyzodiacsigns.com, a Virgo is defined as being loyal, analytical, kind, hardworking, practical, but also being shy, a warrior, overly critical of self and others, and all work and no play. They like animals, healthy food, books, nature, cleanliness, and dislike rudeness, asking for help, taking or taking center stage. So yeah, she seems like a Virgo. You're right. Yeah, she does, actually. (laughs) It all fits. Yeah, the joke makes sense. Thanks. I hope everyone appreciated that (laughs) insight. Uh, I really really liked in that interview Lauren when you guys discussed how with some books you don't really read it for the plot you read it for the mood and I wholeheartedly agree with that as a summary of Matilda 
like mm-hmm. this in a lot of books to be honest but yeah definitely Matilda that could just be like the summary on the back cover and I really loved uh, Rachel's Matilda poem and the Dan Humphrey line and mm-hmm. the Percy Shelley as the bachelor chat and just I want to get smashed and just have this chat again but so that I can join in and be like yeah I get the Virgo thing Woo. <laughs> We'll do that. We'll call it Bonnets After Dark. How about that? Because there'll be like a lot of wine. Yeah, okay. And Rachel can also recite her Tilney poem for you because she does have Jane Austen poetry as well. Oh, I want that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Did you read Matilda yet? <laughs> I I did, Hannah. I definitely read this one with like a whole box of wine. I got like this Boda like red box of wine and it was very drinkable. It reminded me of my favorite red house Prezzo wine. Guys, why won't Prezzo bottle that wine? So I had my wine and my peanut M&Ms and I just like did a deep dive into Matilda and I wrote some notes. I'm going to read them. (laughs) This is not going to be deeply analytical because Matilda is a mood. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's what I'm going to present you with, a mood. Okay. So, okay. So here are just a few thoughts. Maybe it's just because I'm reading a lot of Dorothy Wordsworth at the moment and lamenting the loss of my summer garden, but Shelley is quite the nature writer. I live in a lone cottage on a solitary wide heath. No voice of life reaches me. Is this a line from Matilda or is it from a Florence and the Machine song? Florence and the Machine. That is Matilda. I shall never see the snows of another winter. So that line reminded me of when Carol on Real Housewives of New York said that she only had five good summers left. (gasps) Yeah, I remember that. She did say that. Yeah. And I feel like I should start describing my age by how many seasons I have left. Yeah, it's good as well because it's like it adds a little a, an element of like guesswork to it. Like it mm-hmm. adds a little excitement. Like I could tell yeah. you I'm thirty, but I could tell you that I only expect to see two more summons. Yeah. <laughs> My blood is singing with your voice. I want to pour it out. Florence or Matilda? Matilda. That one's actually Florence. Oh. I know. Right. <laughs> That's great. I mean. <laughs> What? Did you just put that into, like, <laughs> trick? Just to trick you. Yeah. Okay. But, um, okay, so more thoughts about the book, the actual text. I feel like this is maybe around chapter three, four, where I started to think, oh, I'm not qualified. I think I need several psychology degrees to accurately break down Mary Shelley's need to live up to and replace her mother in her father's eyes. Yeah, this is this is becoming very apparent to me. And then um, another note here says, like Frankenstein, we have this return to exploring paternal abandonment and extreme solitude. God, another quote. I drank of an enchanted cup, but gall was at the bottom of its long drawn sweetness. That that's Mary Shelley. <laughs> <FYI>. <laughs> I 
think. I think it might be Florence. Unsure. I'm. Uh, I've stopped notating at this point. Um, let's see. I lived for a while in an enchanted palace amidst odors and music and every luxurious delight. When suddenly I was left at the. When suddenly I was left on a barren rock, a wide ocean of despair rolled around me. All was black, and my eyes closed until I was still inhabited in a universal death. And then chapter five, murder, question mark. (laughs) Is this where we're going? And then like, okay, no, actually, suicide, (laughs) period. And again, I wrote in the text, I am just not qualified, but I'm going to let these feelings like wash over me. I think that's where I stood with the book. I wish I wish I'd read it. I, we were talking about this earlier in the week, but I um I really struggle when I listen to an audiobook. I think to like I totally took it in and I like heard the prose, but I don't I don't like have a memory where I can then be like, "Oh, this was a great line or whatever." So mm-hmm. to prepare the notes, I then had to go back and like skim read it a second time anyway to try and find the bits that I liked. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if audiobooks are like gonna cut it for me. But I remember being stood in yeah. the kitchen and I basically just then didn't leave the kitchen all day because I was listening to it while I was doing some washing up. And that's the other thing with audiobooks. I'm not I can't just like lie on my bed and listen to it. Like passively. Yeah. So I have to do something. So I was like cooking and doing all of this. And so the kitchen ended up being really clean really clean because I was so into Matilda that I was just like, I just need something to do while I listen to this mm-hmm. and I was just in there with this book on really loud just like mouth hanging open like what so I did just want to say before I go any further uh just a big thank you for recommending something that was so atmospheric but wasn't like ghosty or supernatural mm. like I really enjoyed that and then I was like I understand why William Godwin is like you can't publish this book yeah yeah i do too completely like i'm yeah like team william on this one i think it's beautiful i think it's mm-hmm. such a well-written piece of work and it's also my first mary shelley because don't forget i have not read frankenstein right so but at the same time i'm like yeah william i agree one of the things that i found really 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 interesting um, and difficult to read was just how much Matilda internalizes the romantic feelings that her father has towards her and mm-hmm. accepts her part in it and actually blames herself for making him tell her. Yes. And uh, it spoke to me about like some of the difficult experiences that I have had. And I put in my notes, not dad shagging, just FYI, right. not the same situation, but a similar mood. <laughs> right. <laughs> really want to clarify now I'm over clarifying it and I'm making it weird um (laughs) yeah I think I think it it's such a powerful exploration of like the way you can hold yourself accountable for something that really isn't your fault or has and it has nothing to do with you and just that blame and the way you you hold it in Mm -hmm. and I think something that is really yeah uncomfortable about the book is that I'm sat there going yeah I absolutely agree but it just happens to be the topic of this book is your dad wants to shag you (laughs) yeah I don't want to relate to that (laughs) right I wish you'd written about something else 
<laughs> Honestly, I could do without the incest. Right. I just wish she was grappling with a different internalized blame. Well, to make me feel more comfortable. What's funny is like, you know, we're talking a lot about diaries on this season and Mary Shelley's diary is really dry, right? It's like Tuesday, had some water, ate an apple, read this 20 pages of this book. Done. That's it. Like Lindsay and then she has, Yeah. It's like very just just functional almost. Mm-hmm. It's more like a record of like what I ate, what I wrote, what I read. And then she has something like this where it's just like all of the feelings are out. And it doesn't feel like she's dictated so much by like plot or structure or storytelling. It's like she's dictated by feelings. Mm hmm. I think is very it's just very interesting and it's like it's not for everyone I feel like Emily Bronte is very similar as well like that's why it's just sort of it's not for everyone it's like an experience it's like a roller coaster it's a lot of emotions and it's a mood Matilda is a super interesting read but I have to say I'm also like interested of course in the story surrounding the creation and the publication of of the novella A couple of things I find especially interesting are the facts that um, Mary Shelley originally titled this piece Fields of Fancy, and she may have taken the framework from her mother's unfinished story, The Cave of Fancy. And she's even like taken a bit from her father, William Godwin. So the first line of his book, Caleb Williams, reads, my life has for several years been a theater of calamity which I think is a great line, by the Mm. way. Yeah. And Mary is also just as melodramatic as her father when she says in Matilda, you know, if the world is a stage and I'm merely an actor on it, my part has been strange and alas, tragical, which is such a like teenage girl thing to say. Tragical, yeah. (laughs) And then like later on, there's another line that's like, I am a tragedy. And it's just, it's very, that's kind of repeated throughout the book. And um, it's, and it's true. This is a tragedy. It is. Yeah. Um, There were a couple of things from the introduction of the 1959 edition that I found really interesting. So in the introduction, it says, on August 4th, 1819, after a gap of two months from the time of her little son's death, she resumed her diary. Almost every day thereafter for a month, she recorded, write. And by September 4th, she was saying copy. And on September 12th, she wrote, finish copying my tale. And the next entry to indicate literary activity is the one word write on November the 8th. On August 4th, 1819, after a gap of two months from the time of her little son's death, she resumed her diary. Almost every day thereafter for a month, she recorded write. And by September 4th, she was saying copy. And on September 12th, she wrote, finish copying my tale. And the next entry to indicate literary activity is the one word write on November 8th. And on the 12th, Percy Florence was born and Mary did no more writing until March. And so that, not super interesting on its own, right? But when you couple that with 
Matilda offers a good example of Mary Shelley's methods of revision. A study of the manuscript shows that she was a careful workman and that in polishing this bizarre story, she strove consistently for greater credibility and realism, more dramatic, if sometimes melodramatic, presentation of events, better motivation, conciseness and exclusion of purple passages. And then... The finished draft, Matilda, still shows Mary Shelley's faults as a writer, verbosity, loose plotting, somewhat stereotyped and extravagant characterisation. The reader must be tolerant of its heroine's overwhelming lamentations. And I just, I really, I think the thing I really liked about it was just um, how much of the writing process they're like referring mm-hmm. to in the introduction, and actually, just because she's writing about feeling, but she's not just like pouring it out and like unlike a diary entry she's really crafting it and Mm -hmm. like it's it's conscious this isn't just like a free writing practice and then it's turned into a book or anything um and yeah we talk about it a lot on the show but like not an accidental work of genius not something she boshed out in one sitting but just something that she really worked on and i just Mm -hmm. love like carving out that time for yeah. writing because it sounds it sounds she's not saying she did write she's she's like planning her week almost mm-hmm. yeah yeah like a diary in that sense rather than like dear diary today i wrote and then she yes. didn't know and then she didn't write for like six months after her kid was born so we had a little bit of matilda chat in our facebook group and you know it's not too late if you guys still want to read this short story and uh talk to us for some support because you're you might need some you su- might support need yeah <laughs> yeah and i shared a link um, to a great genetic sexual attraction article that i read <laughs> i say yeah great I might help out going. right <laughs> there's a lot of discussion in there as well about uh grimm's fairy tales also mm-hmm. Uh, which it feels like, you know, Shelley's pulling from as well. Um, there was a great comment. Just want to shout out to Eleanor R. Uh, she said this, I just finished reading yesterday and it was so much more raw and intense than I expected. I'm always dubious about autobiographical readings of plots, especially because they are often used to explain away women's creative and imaginative skills. But I can't help but look for autobio sources for the depth and shades of emotion that Shelley evokes. Especially given the time of writing after, especially given the time of writing after the devastating loss of her son William, in chapter eight, when Matilda writes, "I did not listen to their consolations, and so little did they work their designed effect, that they seemed to me to be spoken in an unknown tongue." I found if sorrow was dead within me, so was love and desire of sympathy. It feels like Mary is writing from experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's because Eleanor was saying uh, in the comment that she's always dubious about autobiographical readings of plots, but I don't think it's the plot that's the autobiographical bit. Mm-hmm. It's the it is the emotion. And like that, mm-hmm. you know, there uh, it's like sometimes people will write something that's autobiographical and like the events are also following the course of their lives. But like just because something just because a plot doesn't mirror someone's life doesn't mean it's not autobiographical because if you're writing about your experiences and your feelings and how you reacted or responded to something or you're making sense of something that's still you 
So it's funny that we're having this auto bio discussion this week because um, actually we're going to take that another step further next week when we talk about Dorothy Wordsworth's journals and really kind of get into, you know, how she's writing them and who she's writing them for. So I'm really looking forward to that discussion with Dr. Joe Taylor. And um, yeah, we can talk about it further on the internets, on the social medias. Hannah, what are those? And how do the people talk to us? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. And you can join our Facebook group by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And there it is. There we are. Good job. (laughs) You made it.